We are in 1 Samuel, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, open to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Several years ago when I was uh, relatively new here, it was only like maybe my first year on staff here at this church, uh, there was a guy who came into the church office, and this happens quite often. Uh, He was pretty distraught. He was looking for a pastor to talk to, and somehow, for some reason, I was the only one around. So you talk about drawing the short straw. This guy really got it. And he came into my office, and um, his story was, um, he's like, my relationship with my wife is just shattered, um, and with my kids, they don't want anything to do with me. He's like, I'm completely stressed out, not sleeping, I've been drinking too much. And the root cause of when we got down to it was that he had been dishonest in his business. His family found out, and he was exposed in some deception. And so I, you know, I'm not a very skilled counselor, and I certainly wasn't at that time either. And I just said to him, um, you know, I, I think you just need to be honest and make it right with those that you do business with. And his reply to me was, well, you don't get it. You just don't understand it. You don't understand the lifestyle that I've created. You don't understand um, how much money I make. You don't understand what it takes for me to keep the lifestyle up that we have. And at the time, I was making like $35,000 a year. I was like, you're right. My only lifestyle is I'd like to live indoors and like just stay, stay alive. I don't really understand lifestyle. Um, and he left my office I think more upset and even more distraught than when he came in, which often happens <laughs> when you come into my office. Um, but he was unwilling to trust God and do the thing that would honor God for fear of losing out on what he thought he wanted most in life. And that is the test of your life, and that's the test of mine. That's what it comes down to. And that's where we're headed this morning in our, in our section in 1 Samuel. Will you and I trust God and obey his word and his ways, or will we lean into and trust into our own way and our own understanding and our own desires, no matter what the cost is and the outcome? That's where we're going in 1 Samuel. Let's pray. Just ask God to speak to us this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. God, we've already sang about your faithfulness, and it's just true. God, what Connor led us through, God, that we, we have heard, we have seen. Um, God, we've experienced you making a way when there is no way. And God, I know that there are people in the room um, who are, are at a, a type of precipice this morning. There are things that are just going on in their life, God, that just feel like make it or break it type of scenarios, type of, type of circumstances. And God, first, I just pray that by your Spirit, God, they would know um, that you are so close to them, that you are intimately acquainted with every aspect of what's going on in their life, that you are the God who invites us to cast our cares on you because you care for us. And so, God, I just pray first and foremost that those who are listening in on this, God, as we peer into your word, that they would know that the creator of the universe cares about every single detail and aspect of their life. And because of that, God, we can trust you. So what you lead us into, what you have for us in your word this morning, God, we can trust it and we can trust you. But God, I, we need your spirit for that because it does not depend on 
how well I can explain something. It does not depend on, on a finely crafted argument of why we should trust you. God, we need your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move in this place? God, would you move in the hearts of those who would be listening to your word? God, would you encourage us? Would you confront and convict us? By your kindness, would you lead us to repentance this morning? Do your work in us this morning and transform us and change us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. That's in his name we pray. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 22 is where you should be this morning. So we... We have seen in our study, we want a king, that King Saul, his role is to honor God and to serve God and protect God's people. But when it becomes inconvenient for Saul, we see that in his story, Saul becomes insecure and he becomes selfish. He becomes irrational. He becomes dangerous. And, and God tells Saul that power, that role is being stripped away from you. It's going to be taken away from you and your line, and it's going to be given to another. And rather than having that moment where Saul becomes contrite and confesses and repents, Saul gets paranoid. He thinks everybody's out to get him. Everybody's conspiring against him. And then he begins to look for David, and he's hunting David all over the wilderness so that he can destroy him. So for about a decade of David's life, who is anointed as the next king, he's been running through the wilderness and he's being pursued by Saul so that Saul can kill him. But it's out in the wilderness that we see in these, in these chapters here that through the faithfulness of his friends and through the faithful voice of God, that God uses the heat of the desert to forge into David a kingly character so that David will be the kind of king that God desires. Because in you and in me, God wants to build your character before he puts you in places of power and influence. So how do you trust God when things in your life don't seem to be happening on schedule? When they're not happening in the time frame that you think they should? When, when things are not going the way that you expected? When, when the path that you are on in your life takes a turn or takes a direction that you did not expect? Because so many of us are either in that tension or have experienced that tension or will experience that tension? Do I just take matters into my own hands? Do I just do what I feel is best for me to do? And maybe I have to compromise, but at least I'll be moving forward. Or do I wait on God and trust his timing and his purposes in my life and live in a way that trusts God? So we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 22, but we're just going to kind of take a rolling start into where we're going to be. Saul has, he's made the kingdom all about himself. He's become very dangerous. And you have David who's in this cave as he's been running from Saul. He's serving and protecting in this moment the most vulnerable in society. And while he's in this cave, David begins to gain a perspective on who is the true king above all other kings. And while David is getting perspective, Saul is growing more and more paranoid. Look at verse 6. This is where we'll start this morning. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing by his side. And he said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, is he going to give you all the fields and vineyards? Will he make all of your commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've all conspired against me? You can just hear like Saul's speech here is dripping with insecurity, dripping with fear. No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. 
But Doeg, I figured out how to say that this week. Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's official, said, uh, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. So here's what's happening here. Saul's ranting on. He's complaining about those who are around him. Because when your life is all about you, that's what you do. Everything has to be your way and everything has to be what you do. Saul's saying to these guys, listen, did David hook you up the way that I did? Has David done for you all the things that I have done? Because an insecure leader always has strings attached to his service to you. Why are you all out to get me? And, and he plays the part of a victim, which is a bad look for a leader, particularly a God-appointed leader, because whining is anti-worship. Whining is anti-worship. And that's what Saul is all about in this season of his life. Saul's saying, God, you're not a good boss. If I was in charge of all of this, I could do way better. And so we see Doeg, the Edomite, he steps up and he's, been in a, he's like an informant on what David has done. He's like, I, I've seen him. I saw his encounter with Ahimelech. And he even embellishes the story to kind of further incite Saul, which it does, because he tells Saul that David has this special revelation from the Lord, which he doesn't, because he knows that's going to set Saul off even more. And it does. And so Saul has a, has a yes man, which is another sign of insecure leadership. So watch out if you have friends who are always letting you justify doing whatever you want. And then we see in this story, we're not going to go back through it again, Saul kills. Saul is destructive. He orders his men to, to slay the priests, and the men are like, uh-uh, we are not going to do that. But Doeg will, and he does, and he goes on and he kills women and children and animals. And we're told that only Ahitab, the son of Ahimelech, escapes. And if you remember earlier in this narrative, Saul was called to completely wipe out the Amalekites, but he wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it because he saw a way to further his reputation and to further his power by not killing the Amalekite king. And, and, and it's not... It's not so much that having power or having success or having position or having wealth is bad, but those are all accelerators of, all, of what already exists within you. And if you have character deficits and if you have character brokenness, those things will reveal that. And your selfishness and your insecurity will hurt more people and you become dangerous. So, so the, the, the point here, what we're seeing in Saul is that, Christian, if you do have those things, if you do have power, if you do have position, if you do have influence, if you do have wealth, if you do have those things, consider that God didn't give it to you for you, but to be used for others so that you would serve others with those things and not use others to gain more of those things. So if God's given you those things, what we're learning from Saul here is pray also for the humility to use it and to serve God's people. Now, if you kind of contrast that with the selfishness of Saul, you get the selflessness of David. Saul, we're seeing, becomes the destroyer of people uh, of Nob in verse 22, but David becomes the savior of the people of Israel in chapter 23 at Keilah. So David's on the run. He's got about 400 guys with him. They're trying to escape. They're constantly kind of moving. And they hear uh, about the people in trouble because the Philistines are attacking them. And David's guys are like, I feel really bad for them. We're going to pray for them, but we don't have time for that. We're being pursued. We have to run. And David says, listen, we're 400 warriors. This is what we do. We serve people. So David prays about it. He gets confirmation from God. And he's like, I'm going to use kingly character and my power to serve and protect those who are in need. And so they go and they help him. 
It's inconvenient. It's a huge hassle. It's dangerous. It's costly. As a pastor, his name is Ben Stewart. He says, an inconvenient obedience is better, or excuse me, is better than a convenient disobedience. An inconvenient obedience is better than a convenient disobedience. And so you see that. So David, he goes and he saves the people of Keilah. He also gets word um, from God through Abathar, the son of Ahitub, to save the people and to get out of there. So he does. And then David has to run for his life from the Ziphites. And essentially what you're seeing is David is still running for his life through the wilderness. And then we get to chapter 24. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit more time. We're going to kind of dial in on this story. Chapter 24. Starts out, David has landed himself in yet another cave. And Saul, King Saul, who's been pursuing David, he shows up with about 3,000 men. And, and he has 3,000 hand-picked men. The best of what he has in his entire military. Saul is traveling through the wilderness trying to kill David because of his insecurity and his fear against David. Saul is tasked with protecting his people against their enemies, against the Philistines, but here he is wasting time, wasting resources for his own personal vendetta against David. And it just so happens that as this chapter opens, Saul needs a potty break because everybody poops. It's a book you can get for your kids. In fact, look, look, it's verse 3. I'm not making it up. It's in he, verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says to cover his feet, which is what happens when you take your pants down. So look at verse 4. The Bible is real. Real, real people, this is what they do. Okay. Verse 4. The men said, this is it. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, if you've never heard this story before, you're like, wait, what? He had Saul right there. The guy has thrown spears at him. He's chased him throughout the wilderness, 10 years of his life. I've been running from this maniac, and now he has him in the most vulnerable position. I mean, this guy's been trying to kill David, and now David all of a sudden feels his, is stricken in his conscience because he just cut off a piece of his robe. The robe has been a really significant part of this narrative if you're looking at like how the story goes together. Um, when God was reestablishing his prophets, he did it through Samuel, and Samuel's mom would make him little robes, and when he grew up and he became prophet of God, and he anointed Saul as king, Saul doesn't do what God called him to do, uh, and Samuel comes to him and says, listen, the kingdom is not yours, and there's this altercation, and Samuel tries to go away, and Saul grabs the robe of Samuel and rips it and tears, and Samuel says to Saul, 
That right there is what's going to happen to your kingdom. That is, that is what's happening to you. The same way that you just ripped my robe is the same way that the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Jonathan, who is Saul's son and best friends with David, he knows this. This is why in the narrative he takes off his robe and he hands it to David. Jonathan supports David. And here in this moment, Saul's robe is a symbol of authority. And David takes his sword, a symbol of judgment, to symbolically cut away God's power from Saul. And as soon as David does that, God strikes his heart. And, and David says, wait a minute, I am, I am not supposed to do this. Because David is thinking in that moment, even if God has put Saul in front of me, I can't kill him because it's still murder. Here's the lesson. And this is what we're going to see in the rest of our time together. It is so easy for us to confuse our desires with the will of God. It is so easy for us to confuse our circumstances with the will of God. Just because it makes you happy in the short term, just because it alleviates some level of suffering in the short term, and and even might give you some momentary relief, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will. And people will use this all the time. They use this line of reasoning for ways that they justify affairs or overspending or addictions and behaviors to numb pain in their life. It's the reason why they think they can cheat their employers or their businesses. Your desire is not a good guide to the will of God. Circumstances are not always a good guide to the will of God because both of those things can become deceptive. The word of God is the reliable guide to the will of God. Let me say that again. The Word of God is the reliable guide to the will of God. Let the Word of God guide your desires and interpret your circumstances. How do you know the difference between providence and temptation? David knows Saul is God's anointed. So for David to destroy this man is for him to say, well, I know better than God. My timing's better than God's. David knows that he's going to be king one day and that Saul won't. He doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen, how God's going to work that out, but he does know it's not going to happen by murder. It's not going to happen by doing something that God expressly condemns. So how do you know the difference between providence and temptation? Perceived providence never overrides revealed obedience. Let me say that again. Perceived providence He's in the cave. He's right in front of you. Super vulnerable. Never overrides revealed obedience. Thou shall not murder. Many people will deny an expressed text about how God calls us to live because a circumstance arises that feels like an answer to a desire. The Bible tells us that God wants to be honored not just with what our life produced, not just the outcomes, but with the process. It's not just about the end product. With God, it's all about the process. It's God's will in your life done God's way. That's the expectation that God has for you and for me. That's the expectation that you have on us. You do expect to show up on a, on a Sunday and you're like, you know what, I want, the, 
I want the service to be excellent. I want them to have practiced. I want them to know what it is that they're going to be presenting. I want them to lead us in a way that makes much of God and it reminds us of the hope that we have in him, that honors God, that reminds me of what God has and says for me. That's the expectation that you have for us. Now, if you found out that me and Connor are in the green room sacrificing goats to Satan, you wouldn't be like, well, you know, the service is still good. It doesn't matter what they're back there doing. That's the expectation that you have. That's the expectation that God has for you. We should have integrity in the process, not just the end product. And so don't use a perception of God's providence as a justification for your sin. Well, well, I mean, God put us in the same hotel on this work trip, so why would he not want us together? Why wouldn't he, why, why would God allow me to sit next to the smartest person in class if he knew that I was failing this class, if he didn't want me to look over at their paper or to cheat off of their work or to use their work? Why would God give my credit card a massive credit line increase if he doesn't want me to have a giant new flat screen TV right before football season? It's timing. It's perfect. Jehovah Jireh. David knows I cannot achieve the purposes of God by compromising the commands of God. So David trusts God. And his guys can't believe it. The next section is even crazier because David runs out of the cave. It's one thing to have that moment where he sneaks up on him and cuts the cloth and he's like, I should not have done that. But now David takes it a step further. He actually runs out of the cave and he's like, hey guys, it's me, David. Thanks, Saul, by the way, for taking a grump in the cave. Still smells in there, man. Check this out. I've got a piece of your robe, chief. I could have killed you. I had the opportunity to take you out. But I'm not your enemy. Look at what he says in verse 11, chapter 24. He says, see, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. So may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. Saul, I'm not out to get you, man. Stop acting crazy. Look at verse 13. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. What David is saying is, me doing wickedness against you makes me wicked, no matter how I could justify doing it. No matter how it's going to make me feel, me doing wicked things makes me wicked. And God, if you call it wicked, it's wicked. So this morning, which path are you on? Are you Right now in your life, just taking matters into your own hands, even though it's wicked and you're justifying your decisions and you're justifying your actions and you've surrounded people, uh, you've surrounded yourself with people who are just encouraging you to take shortcuts and to make compromises, or are you trusting God and waiting on his provision? Are you taking matters into your own hands through revenge or some stolen pleasure or compromise or manipulating circumstances and people? And waiting on God doesn't mean that you sit around and you do 
do nothing. It means that you are attentive to what God wants. This summer, somebody gifted my wife and I an incredible gift, um, something extremely generous, where we had a chance to go on a, on a cruise. And on the cruise, you have like different waiters and different people who are just attentive to your every need. And it's almost like that they become kind of like, they, like they have like a pre- premonition of what it is that you want before you even know that you want it. That's the idea of what it means to wait on the Lord, that you are so dialed in to the desires of God that when these things happen in life, you're like, I can clearly see this is in line with God's desires or this is misaligned with what God desires. Waiting on God means being attentive to his desires and pursuing his purposes that are clearly laid out in his word and doing things God's way in his timing. That's how we experience the blessing of God in our lives. The biggest enemies in your life right now, you might think it's the Saul's in your life. It's the people who are pursuing you, the people who are enacting vengeance against you, the people who are just a constant thorn in your side. The biggest enemy in your life is your inability to wait on God, being dialed into the desires of God. It's one of the most important skills as a believer. Listen in verse 16 as we kind of finish this chapter. It says this. David finished saying this. He said, Saul, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? The answer is no. May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, and then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, kingly character or character that comes from a different place is undeniable. And even though people might rage against it, Saul, he knows that he is wrong. And so Saul goes home and David goes to the stronghold. Just because you forgive a guy doesn't mean that you have to go home with him. He's still nuts. He's like, hey man, I'm going back to the stronghold. You go home. I'm not hanging out with you. And we looked at like what happened in Psalm 57 last week. We're not going to go back into that. But, but one commentary, he said that in this moment, here's what happens with David. David trusts in the sovereignty of God. And he leans into the steadfast love of God. And he's selfless. He knows that it's not all about him. And he's ultimately satisfied with God and what God says about him. And so when you are tempted in your life, to take, it, to take matters into your own hands, it means that you're failing in one of these areas. You don't really believe that God is sovereign. You aren't really convinced of his love for you. You, like Saul, think it's all about you and you're self-centered and you're insecure and you aren't satisfied with God and God's approval of, of you. And so we move to, to chapter 25. I'm just gonna tell this story real quick. The scene shifts to a guy named Nabal, Uh, And David's been living in the vicinity of Nabal and actually protecting Nabal and his assets and his resources for years. So Nabal is extremely wealthy. And there is a moment um, where there's a tradition that every year at the time of sheep shearing, and Nabal has thousands of sheep, the Bible says, you would give a gift to the people who helped you out during that year. And so David sends a request for a small gift, which is totally customary in that time. 
And Nabal not only says no, which is very rude, but then he kind of compounds it, and he's like, who is this David guy anyway? I don't know this guy. And he goes, there's a lot of guys who are running away from their masters these days. These are crazy times we live in. I don't know David. I'm not going to help him. And David's like, you know who I am. I killed Goliath. You heard that story. There's a big song about me, top number one hit on the charts. You know exactly who I am. So listen how David responds in verse 11, chapter 25. He says this, why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I've slaughtered? David turned around, verse 12. So David turns around and went back and they arrived and they reported. And David said to his men, each of you strap on a sword. Regulators, mount up. It's time to go. And so David takes, he takes his, he takes his guys and he's like, we are going to go slaughter them. Look at verse 21. That's what he says. So David kind of is in like a blind rage right now. He says, now swear to me by the Lord, you will not kill off my descendants. Excuse me, wrong chapter. Chapter 25. Uh, he says this, David said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely. If by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. He's so offended that he charges down there. He's like, everybody strap on a sword. We're going to go take out Nabal and we're going to take out all of his guys. And so he's going down there and he's intercepted by Abigail. Abigail is Nabal's wife. And in verse three, it tells us that she's beautiful. She's discerning. It contrasts with Nabal, who's a, who's a fool, basically. And he's very harsh. And she intercepts David on his way to take out uh, her husband. Verse 25 says this. Please pay attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. Now, this is not a verse describing how a wife should talk about her husband. But if a group of 400 warriors show up at your doorstep to wipe out your whole tribe, the rules change a little bit. (laughs) So here's the important thing real quick that we're going to see about Abigail as we end. In this moment, she steps in um, between judgment and the foolishness of her husband, Nabal. Listen to what she says, and listen to how she reminds David. She says this in verse 28. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no, cause, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living, of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord... Every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have it on his conscience the staggering burden of of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success. Remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. She reminds David, listen, this is not who you are. Remember what Yahweh has said over you. Remember that God is the one who fights your battles. He's the one who brings victory. He's the one who vindicates you. Remember, you don't have to take matters into your own hands. She's reminding him, the Lord is your shepherd, David. 
Don't get dragged down. Elevate to the level of kingship that God has promised you. We need Abigails in our life who help us to discern the will of God, who speak the word of God to us, who, who pray God's word with us and, and pray for the discernment of God and, and, and counsel. The, the text has a, a little device in it where it says that Nabal's heart became like a stone because we see that later on in the story, Nabal actually dies of a heart attack. And Abigail told David in verse 29, the lives of David's enemies will be slung out of a sling like a stone. Remember this story. So David's familiar with stones and slings, meaning, David, God's going to save you. The same way that a stone is flung out of a sling, God's going to do that to your enemies. You might not know this morning how God's going to come through in your circumstance and in no way am I trying to belittle your situation or your issues. I'm just trying to show you there is a revealed obedience in God's word. And there are God's people with God's spirit. And you can wait and you can trust God. You, you don't always get to control providence. You don't always get to control your circumstances. But you can always control your obedience. We don't always get to choose our circumstances. But we can always choose to trust God and obey his word in our circumstances. The band's going to come up. We're going to pray, and we're going to end here. Um, and as we do, we, we see that David doesn't always realize that in this wilderness season um, that God's forging a character that he's going to use to serve him and his people. And I don't know what kind of wilderness season you find yourself in, but I do know that God is doing the same thing. And I do know that in our wilderness seasons, there's always the temptation to do the expedient thing. And my encourage you, encouragement this morning to you is do not choose expedience over obedience because God wants to bless you. God wants you to walk in his will, but he wants you to do it his way. And the reality is that so many of you on the, are on the precipice of disaster or blessing. You're at a real tipping point in your life. You want your situation to change relationally. You want your situation to change financially. You want your situation to change professionally. And you are about to make or you are in the middle of making major compromises. And I think God in his mercy this morning is inviting you to turn away, just like Abigail encouraged David, turn away from what you will regret for the rest of your life and trust God. And you might look at me and be like, well, man, that's really easy for you to say up there on that stage, pastor guy. Yeah, a pastor who's tempted in every single way that you are, a pastor who's taken the shortcuts from time and lives with that regret a pastor who's trusted God and experienced that blessing. And so it might be this morning that you need to stop and confess and repent and turn away from an attitude or a behavior this morning. There might be a Saul in your life that you want to exact revenge on. There may be a Nabal in your life who has disrespected you and you have a sword strapped on for them and you are just ready to go. And I am not saying that what Saul or Nabal or what these people have done to you isn't wrong. But David humbles himself and listens to the word of God and not his social media feed. And he lets God speak to him through the Abigails in his life, someone who 
loves you more than just being liked by you. It's not about your willpower in this. It's about you leaning into the steadfast love of the Lord for you and trusting that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And because of his love for you, you can look at your situation. You can be like, God, the bills are so high, but I'm going to be generous. God, I just, all I can think about is myself, but I'm going to serve others. God, getting out of this deception or having it exposed is going to be really difficult, but I'm going to be honest and I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to restrain my lust because I know it honors you to not use people and dehumanize them as objects, but to care for them as image bearers of the one true God and objects of your love and grace. So I'm going to say no to my flesh. And because I love you, I'm going to say yes to you and walk in your way. Every week here, we take communion. And communion is where I believe we just most radically see the heart of God displayed. Years later, you see David Um, After David, a different king would be in the wilderness, the son of David, who is Jesus. And in that wilderness moment, David, um, in in that wilderness moment, Satan will go to Jesus. And Satan will promise to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. They're, They're looking out and Satan says to Jesus, all of this can be yours. All you have to do is just turn from God your Father and worship me. And, and, and Satan knows that it's all going to be Jesus's anyway, but he also knows that the path between that and where Jesus is is a ton of suffering and a ton of sacrifice. And Satan says, you can shortcut all that suffering and all that sacrifice. You can shortcut all those wilderness moments if you'll just turn from the Father and turn to me. And in that moment, Jesus says, no, I'm going to do God's will and I'm going to do it God's way. You hold in your hand um, a cup and bread, body and blood. And Jesus would take the full cup of suffering in his life and in his death because of his love for his Father, but his love for you and his love for me. And so the, all the sin that must be paid for, all the rebellion that must be paid for, all the foolishness that must be paid for is paid for so that God can be truly just and so that your sin can be wiped away without you being wiped away. We are all Nabal. We've insulted Jesus and Jesus refused to take vengeance on us. Instead, he died for us. The wrath of God was put fully and finally on him at the cross. Jesus steps in front of the sword of judgment due us because of our foolishness, because of our rebellion, because of our insults. And Jesus says, no, take me instead. And he saves your life and he saves mine. And he takes that hit and he rose victorious and now he reigns forever as king of kings. Because, the, because Jesus did God's will, God's way, we share in that kingdom. And because of the faithfulness that you hold in your hand with the cup and with the bread, the body and the blood, we can trust him. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I just invite you to eat and to drink. And as you do, 
as you do. There are places in your life that I believe the Spirit of God is pressing on you right now. The places where you don't want to trust God, you want to do it your way. And as you take the cup and as you take the bread, might you just give those things to God? And might you just say, God, it's so hard. It's so difficult. I feel like it's right in front of me for my taking. And might God press upon your conscience. Might God lean into your heart and overwhelm you with his love and remind you of his faithfulness as you eat and drink in celebration of him. Let's do that now.